Welcome to the Ravages History Podcast. What comes to your mind when I say the fall of the Roman Empire? Do you have images of Germanic barbarians at the gates of the Eternal City? Is that Alaric destroying the city's greatest temples in the early 5th century? Are we leaving the period of history we class as ancient and entering the early Middle Ages? Are the centuries to follow commonly known as the Dark Ages? What if I told you that the battle that ended the Roman Empire was the same battle that historians mark as the end, not the beginning, of the Middle Ages? Back in the 4th century, the Emperor Constantine moved the capital to another city, Constantinople, and in the century that followed, the empire split in half, east and west, with the city of Rome in the west. So much had the city fallen out of favour that it wasn't even the capital of the Western Roman Empire, and its sack by Alaric and the Germans in 410 was more of a symbolic victory. But in less than a hundred years, the Western Empire would fall completely, and it's that fall that we think about when we think of the end of the Roman Empire. The west was dealing with the barbarians, but the east had to deal with the Huns. But after the fall of Attila, the Eastern Empire enjoyed a period of peace. The traditional fall of the Western Empire is given as 476, but there is so much going on that it's difficult to put a definitive date on it. 150 years later, Emperor Justinian rises to power and goes about reconquering parts of the Old West, including North Africa, Spain and Italy. He's also the last emperor to use the title Caesar. But the empire finds itself stretched and fighting on many fronts, especially against the rise of a new religion and states of that religion, the Muslims, who in 717 siege Constantinople, but fail to take the city. Over the next few centuries, regions would swap back and forth between the Byzantines and various Muslim states, and even non-Muslim states. Now we reach 1204, some 800 years after the fall of the Western Roman Empire. The Fourth Crusade captures the city and installs a pretty unstable Latin state in and around Constantinople, while the remaining empire is splintered into a number of Greek successor states. This was the face of the Byzantine Empire. Its official language had long ago been changed from Latin to Greek, but the Byzantines didn't call themselves Byzantines. This is a name applied to the empire by later historians to help show the dividing lines in history, with its citizens continuing to refer to their empire as the Roman Empire. Now, one of those Greek successor states was the Nicaeans, who reconquered Constantinople in 1261, but it was on the back foot for there on after, continually fending off attacks from the Latins, Serbians, the Bulgarians and the Ottoman Turks. Going back to when the city was first founded, it was picked because of its location, and it stood strong through the fall of the Western Empire because of its famous defences. It sat on an elevated rocky peninsula with sea on three sides. North of the city was an estuary known as the Golden Horn. To the east lay the Straits of Bosporus, which connected the Black Sea further north with the Sea of Marmara, and on the southern shore lay the Sea of Marmara itself. 
Attacking the city by sea was very difficult. The Bosporus had strong currents which were a real danger for hostile fleets, while the Golden Horn was a strong harbour for the Byzantines during wartime, sheltering friendly ships and allowing the city to be supplied during long sieges. So then the other option to take the city was to the west, the land route. The walls of Constantinople were legendary, with more information available about them than the final siege of the city. I could actually do an entire hour-long episode on these walls, but I'm just going to try and summarise it for you here. So they were known as the Theodosian Walls, and they were about a mile west of the original Constantinople Walls, and stretched for nearly four miles. The Theodosian Walls were built in the early 4th century. A thousand years later, they were still just as formidable. Now, if you were an attacker, the first thing you'd hit would be a trench, running along the outer wall about 20 metres wide and 7 metres deep, protected by a palisade, which is a kind of wooden wall. And don't think that a wooden wall is just a piece of cake to climb across, especially as this wall had about 90 square or octagonal towers every 70 metres or so, providing extra defences and places to set up extra catapults. Now, as an attacker, you've made it across the moat and over the wooden wall, all the while arrows, stones and boulders raining down on you. But that's not it. There's not even close to it yet. A second layer of defences now lay in front of you, in the form of another wall, this one made of stone and about 9 metres high. Make it past that and you're still not home free. A third layer of walls, the most formidable of all, lay in front of you. This third layer, the inner walls, were also built of stone and were 12 metres high and about 6 metres thick. But there were some weaknesses that could be exploited in these walls. Pipes and aqueducts that supplied the city with water, though there were plenty of water storages that kept the city going during a siege, could be cut off by an enemy, and then they could use those aqueducts to enter the city if the defenders were not properly prepared. While we're talking about water supply, it's a good time to point out the giant cisterns that collected rainwater and stored it for public use. Another problem was the area where the land walls met the sea walls which was more vulnerable and ended up being a focus of attack during sieges. The final major weakness was a section of wall known as the Mesotation, which sat between two major gates. The walls had to accommodate the valley of the river Lycos, which meant that here the attackers had higher ground where they could bombard the defenders. So what about those sea walls? Well, they were not quite as impressive as the land walls, and they weren't built in the sea itself, but along the coast, in such a way that prevented large numbers of soldiers landing there. Remember those strong currents made it very dangerous for any naval attack, and to have any hope of a successful attack by sea, an attacker must take the harbour at the Golden Horn. That harbour was well protected by a 300 metre long iron chain, which prevented any ships from getting past. Remember, ships of this time were built of wood and didn't have the same kind of strength as modern ships. A chain like this would have ripped ships apart. The Byzantine navy had a secret naval weapon that proved very, very useful. Greek fire. Greek fire was a liquid flame projected through siphons that was capable of burning even on water. Against those wooden ships, its effects were devastating, not only destroying the ships, but also their enemies' morale, most of whom would have never seen such a thing before. 
many key naval engagements and sieges may have been lost without Greek fire. Sadly today, we don't know the exact composition of the fire. Its secrets have been lost to history. Now, let's talk about supplies. I already talked about the water, but what about food? Well, most of the city's residents had their own garden to grow vegetables, and thanks to its strategic location, food and other necessities could reach Constantinople by both land and sea. There were also imperial granaries that stored reserves of grain for times of emergency. This meant Constantinople could withstand long sieges, which slowly whittled down its attackers through attrition. One thing that just destroyed cities during the long sieges is disease spreading through them due to the inefficient waste management. But Constantinople also had an underground drainage system that carried wastewater out of the city. The defenders of the city were really confident, unlike the defenders of many other cities. Whereas time dragged on and the conditions worsened, hope and faith would slowly drain away. But the city was famous for being impossible to take. The Byzantines believed in the power of their defences and technology. Also, they believed that Constantinople had divine protection from the Virgin Mary and other precious relics stored in the city. During sieges, the icon of the Virgin Mary would be displayed, giving the defenders a huge morale boost. In fact, the effects of morale was generally the opposite of what was expected during normal sieges, with the attackers losing hope while the defenders watched on as an enemy army suffered and fell apart. So you can understand here, trying to conquer Constantinople was a daunting task. The geographical advantages, fortifications, technology, bountiful supplies, and dauntlessness of its defenders made the city almost impregnable. But this didn't stop people trying, and as we've said earlier, the city was captured during the Fourth Crusade, and although the newly installed government didn't last long and it went back to the Byzantines, they would be pressed on all sides by enemies. Between 1346 and 1349, the city was hit by the Black Plague, which killed almost half of Constantinople's inhabitants, leaving it badly depopulated. By 1450, the empire was exhausted, and it was pretty much just a few square miles outside the city of Constantinople itself, along with a few small holdings around Europe. So who were the Byzantines facing? We mentioned them before, it was the Ottoman Empire, a relatively new player on the scene. In the 1300s, Anatolia, which is basically modern-day Turkey, was divided into a patchwork of independent, mostly Turkish states. One of these states was led by Osman I, which is where the name Ottoman comes from, and he extended the frontier of the Turkish settlement towards the edge of the Byzantine Empire. Even today, there is little known about medieval Anatolia, so we don't really know how he managed to dominate the region. After the death of Osman I, the state began to extend their hold over the eastern Mediterranean and the Balkans. Osman's son, Orhan, captured the city of Bursa in 1324 and made it the new capital of the Ottoman state. Bursa was controlled by the Byzantines, and losing it meant losing control over northwest Anatolia. As more cities fell and other states collapsed, the city of Constantinople found itself surrounded by the Ottomans. With all this expansion of Turkish domination into the Balkans, the strategic conquest of Constantinople became a crucial objective, since the Ottomans now controlled all of the former Byzantine lands surrounding the city. The Byzantine emperors turned to the west for help. 
despite the fact that it was the West who, only 200 years ago, sacked the city. But the Pope would only even think about helping the Byzantines if there could be a reunion of the Eastern Orthodox Church with the See of Rome. The emperors, in desperation, tried to have this done, but the Orthodox citizenry and clergy intensely resented the authority of Rome, and most Western rulers ignored the Byzantines' call for help. And the Pope didn't order them to do so either. Though no large-scale help was forthcoming, smaller groups of independent soldiers did come to the city's aid. Among these were 700 professional soldiers under the command of Giovanni Justiniani. In 1451, Mehmed II ascended to the Ottoman throne and straight away began making his preparations to take Constantinople, now led by Emperor Constantine XI. Mehmed already had a fortress on the Asian side of the Bosporus and had begun constructing another one on the European shore. This allowed him to basically take control of the strait and therefore cut off Constantinople from the Black Sea and any potential aid that might have been received from colonies in the region. With this latest threat, Constantine ensured that the massive Theodosian walls were repaired. The walls in the northern Blachene district were strengthened, and to prevent a naval attack against the Golden Horn, he had the chain stretched open across the mouth of the harbour to block Ottoman ships from entering. But thanks to the plague and the population reduction of the empire, the city was badly short of men. Those 700 professional soldiers were a great help, but the coming battle would see the Ottomans bringing as many as 120,000 men to the fight. So Constantine ordered that the bulk of his forces defend the Theodosian Wars, leaving the rest of the defences mostly unmanned. Along with those 120,000 men, Mehmed was also supported by a large fleet in the Sea of Marmara. But this alone would not be enough to take the city, and Mehmed knew that. So he was bringing a secret weapon with him. A massive cannon designed by a mysterious figure by the name of Auburn, or Urban. The cannon was called Basilica. It was 27 feet long and could shoot a 600-pound stone ball more than a mile in distance. This wasn't his only cannon. He had 70 of them, 56 smaller calibre and 14 larger ones. On April 1st, 1453, the lead elements of the Ottoman army arrived outside Constantinople, and over the next five days more and more came, until on the 5th of April, Mehmed arrived with the last of his men, and straight away began making preparations for laying siege to the city. As the siege was set up and began squeezing the city, elements of Mehmed's army moved through the region, capturing minor Byzantine outposts. Meanwhile, he set up his cannons and began bombarding the Theodosian walls, but with little effect. These are still the early days of cannon technology, so their accuracy is pretty terrible. And that big one, Basilica, took three hours to reload after each shot. So with such a long gap between not only shots, but also hits, the Byzantine defenders were able to make repairs to the walls before they started to completely fall apart. They didn't have much look at sea, either with the Ottoman fleet unable to penetrate the chain across the Golden Horn and harbour. But Mehmed really wanted his ships to penetrate the Horn, so he ordered that several ships be rolled along the greased logs along the ground and move the ships along the land around the chain, then refloating them in the Horn behind the chain. 
The counterattack by the Byzantines with their Greek fire failed. The Ottomans were ready for it, and Constantine was forced to shift men to the Golden Horn walls, which weakened the landward forces. Initial assaults against the Theodosian walls repeatedly failed, as they always had through the city's history. So Mehmed ordered his men to begin digging tunnels to mine beneath the Byzantine defences. And this isn't the first time we've heard of this, and it isn't the first time it's been tried. Constantine was ready, and there were vigorous countermining efforts, which intercepted the first Ottoman mine on May 18th, a month and a half into the siege. Subsequent mines were defeated on May 21st and 23rd. On that latter day, two Turkish officers were captured and tortured until they revealed the location of the remaining mines, which were destroyed on May 25th. Despite these successes, morale in the city dropped suddenly when word reached them that there would be no aid coming from Italy. And the religious vigour of the population now worked against them, as a series of omens were recorded, including a thick, unexpected fog which blanketed the city on the 26th of May. Many of the people in the city were now convinced the city was about to fall. But outside, Mehmed was getting frustrated, after nearly two months sieging and getting nowhere. He held a war council on the 26th, the same day as the fog, and put together a plan to launch a massive assault on the night of the 28th and 29th. Shortly before midnight on the 28th, Mehmed sent his auxiliaries forward. Auxiliaries are always poorly equipped, and their job was to tire and kill as many of the defenders as possible. They were then followed by an assault against the weakened Blachene walls by soldiers from Anatolia. They were actually successful and broke through, but they were driven back quickly by an organised counterattack. But with this success, Mimud sent his elite Genissaries, thinking these better soldiers would break through and not be pushed back. But remember Justiniani and his professional soldiers? They managed to hold off the Genissaries. After hard fighting, though, Justiniani was wounded and taken away from the fighting for treatment. Without their brilliant commander, the forces began to collapse. More fighting was taking place further south, with Constantine leading his forces defending the walls at the other weak point, that Lycus Valley. After fierce fighting, his position also began to collapse, and the Ottomans found one of the gates, astonishingly, had been left open. Now enemy forces were pouring through the open gate, and Constantine was forced to fall back. The Ottomans, now inside, were able to open more gates and flooded the city. Constantine's exact fate isn't known, but it is believed that he was killed leading a last desperate attack against the enemy. In the book They Saw It Happen in Europe, written by C.R.N. Ruth in 1965, he quotes an apparent extract from someone in Constantinople when it fell. I'm going to quote the whole thing here since it gives you a real feel for what it was like in the city. The supposed eyewitness said, quote, Nothing will ever equal the horror of this harrowing and terrible spectacle. People, frightened by the shouting, ran out of their houses and were cut down by the sword before they knew what was happening. And some were massacred in their houses where they tried to hide, and some in churches where they sought refuge. The enraged Turkish soldiers gave no quarter. When they had massacred and there were no longer any residents, they were intent on pillage and roamed through the town, stealing, disrobing, pillaging, killing, raping, taking captive men, women, children, old men, young men, monks, priests, people of all sorts and conditions. 
There were virgins who awoke from troubled sleep to find those brigands standing over them with bloody hands and faces full of abject fury. This medley of all nations, these frantic brutes, stormed into their houses, dragged them, tore them, forced them, dishonoured them, raped them, at the crossroads, and made them submit to the most terrible outrages. It is even said that at the mere sight of them, many girls were so stupefied that they almost gave up the ghost. Old men of venerable appearance were dragged by their white hair and piteously beaten. Priests were led into captivity in batches, as well as reverend virgins, hermits and recluses who were dedicated to God alone and lived for him to whom they sacrificed themselves, who were dragged from their cells and others from the churches in which they had sought refuge in spite of their weeping and sobs and their emaciated cheeks, to be made objects of scorn before being struck down. Tender children were brutally snatched from their mother's breasts, and girls were piteously given up to strange and horrible unions, and a thousand other terrible things happened. Temples were desecrated, ransacked and pillaged. Sacred objects were scornfully flung aside. The holy icons and the holy vessels were desecrated. Ornaments were burned, broken in pieces or simply thrown into the streets. Saint shrines were brutally violated in order to get out the remains which were then thrown to the wind. Chalices and cups for the celebration of the Mass were set aside for their orgies or broken or melted down or sold. Priest garments, embroidered with gold and set with pearls and gems, were sold to the highest bidder or thrown into the fire to extract the gold. Immense numbers of sacred and profane books were flung on the fire or torn up and trampled underfoot. The majority, however, were sold for a few pence. Saints' altars, torn from their foundations, were overturned. All the most holy hiding places were violated and broken in order to get out the holy treasures which they contained. When Mimud saw the ravages, the destruction, and the deserted houses, and all that had perished and become ruins, then a great sadness took possession of him, and he repented the pillage and all the destruction. Tears came into his eyes, and sobbing he expressed his sadness. What a town this was, and we have allowed it to be destroyed. His soul was full of sorrow, and in truth it was natural. So much did the horror of the situation exceed all limits. End quote. The losses for the Ottomans aren't known, but on the other side we think about 4,000 defenders were killed. Despite all the animosity between Constantinople and the other Christian nations, the loss of the city was a devastating blow to Christendom, leading Pope Nicholas V to call for an immediate crusade to recover the city, but no one stepped forward to lead it. This was a turning point in Western history, marking the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of the Renaissance. Fleeing the city, Greek scholars arrived in the West, bringing with them priceless knowledge and rare manuscripts. Another consequence of the fall, Constantinople had been serving as a vital link between East and West, and now that trade link between the two was cut, leading many to begin seeking routes east by the sea, bringing about the age of exploration. On the other side, Mimud would be known forever as the Conqueror, and the Ottoman Empire would stand for half a millennia before its collapse in the First World War. But it was finally the end of the Roman Empire an empire that had stood for nearly one and a half thousand years.